You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Uh, Morning, Harborside. So the uh, Bible reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the son of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sephra and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Thanks, Tony. Good morning, everybody. Morning, Tony. Well done with all those names. Good job. Some of them were tough. Uh, it's good to be here this morning, Julie May. Thank you for leading us so well in our service. Caleb, how good is ca- having Caleb up on the music? Let's have a give up for our very own Caleb. Where was he hiding that talent? Oh, he's going to be up every second week now. It's fantastic. Oh, it's great. We are starting a new series. No guesses, no prizes for what we are doing. Julie Mays mentioned it. It's emblazoned behind me. We are starting a new series in the book of Exodus. And I do wonder what you're thinking as we dive into a book from the Old Testament. What are you thinking? We are talking about things that happened three and a half thousand years ago, thereabouts. How relevant can that be to you and I today? It's a long time. How relevant. Dave, aren't we just better off sticking with the New Testament? Aren't we better off sticking with Jesus? Familiar territory. Aren't we a bit safer if we do that? 
Maybe you might be thinking this a lot, a little bit. All is forgiven if you are, that's okay. But let me say this before we get going. If you have any hint of that, please, can I encourage you with this one thing before we get started? Let me make you a promise. We're talking about promises today. Let me make you a promise. If you take this journey with us through this ancient book, Caleb particularly promises you, no, we promise that your vision for God will be expanded. Your vision for God will be blown up. And more than that, you will have a greater understanding, a greater knowledge of, a greater love for God and for Jesus as you read the New Testament. If you take this journey with us reading Exodus your understanding of who Jesus is, what he's done in the New Testament, will also be blown up, okay? feel like I'm a bit of a salesman here at the moment. Are you with us as we dive into Exodus? I hope so. Exodus is an action-packed book. You might know a little bit about it. Movies have been made about it, some okay ones, some truly awful ones. It's action-packed. There are talking burning bushes, divine plagues, murder, political intrigue, amazing miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. But more than that, Exodus deals with just some profound questions, some fundamental questions of the Bible and some fundamental questions that humans have been wrestling with ever since we could wrestle with questions like, who is God? What is he like? And if he is real, how would he relate to his people? What does he think about the people he has created? Does he want to be with them? And if he does, how on earth could that be possible? This and more we'll be tackling as we dive into the Exodus series. But what about this morning? What are we going to dive into this morning? Uh, our youngest son, Micah, has just started doing something kind of cute. He's been doing it for a little while. He, uh, he'll often ask me to do something to play with him, which I love doing. Might be shoot some hoops, kick the footy, or just recently we've got an Xbox, you know, playing FIFA. He loves it. He's just gotten better than me, which is really frustrating. He's only seven. And he'll say, Dad, can we do one of those things? And often I'll say, yeah, if I can. But sometimes he asks me at difficult times, like right before I'm about to go to work, Dad, can we play? And I'll say, well, not right now, when I get home. And then he'll go, pinky promise. And he'll put out his hand. You know what I'm talking about? He'll put out his hand like this with his pinky out there. And he wants to grab my pinky and shake on it. You know, he wants to make sure what I'm saying is true. I need a guarantee. I need a pinky promise to make sure you're going to follow through. Promises. We all make them. And truth is we all break them from time to time, don't we? And I'm yet to break a pinky, pinky promise, I think, and I'm, I don't want to. It's a pretty serious thing, apparently. God is a promise maker. Is he a promise keeper? That's a massive question the Bible deals with, and particularly the books of, book of Exodus. God makes some serious promises to his people in the book before. We'll get there in a moment. Can he keep them? Will he keep them? In spite of everything that's going on? Will they happen? Will they ever come about? And today, we're going to deal, wrestle with a question, right, that comes up when we live in the tension between promise made and promise fulfilled. We live in that tension. 
And what's the question? The question can be often, God, where are you? God, where are you? Where are you, God, when? Dot, dot, dot. Our chapter this morning deals with that tension as the people of God deal with that tension. God, where are you? This chapter will push us to search for and to trust in the hidden hand of God and lean on his unchanging character. That's where we're going this morning. Okay. But first, we're going to need to do a bit of background. This is good stuff. We're going to need to do some background because the first part of the chapter that Tony read for us had a list of names that, again, Tony nailed, well done. He'd rehearsed, I could tell. What's the deal with those names? Who are they? How did they even get to Egypt? Well, we're going to spend just a few moments answering that question. As you may know, Exodus is the second book in our English Bible. So we're going to have to quickly review the first, right? It's not going to make a whole lot of sense if we don't know what's come before. First book of the Bible, Genesis. I'm sure you know the details, but let's just spend some time fleshing out some big themes that help us tackle Exodus. You know how Genesis begins. God makes everything. He makes the heavens and the earth. That includes our first parents. They dwell in the Garden of Eden and all is good. Humans are in their happy place. But of course, you know, it doesn't last long. Adam and Eve rebel against the authority of God and are cast out of the garden. It is a tragedy we see in Genesis 3. They are cast out of Eden, constantly heading east. And here's the question, how are we ever going to get back there? How are we ever going to get back to the place where we were most happy? That's a question that's dealt with right throughout the Bible and in the book of Exodus. How are we going to get back there? After Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, things don't get better on their own. They go from bad to worse. Adam and Eve's sons, one kills the other. They have another child. Maybe he'll be made from better stuff. No. And again and again, we see just a list of people who are born and do despicable things. And by the time you get to the end of Genesis 11, you think, where is the hope? What's this story about? And then Genesis chapter 12, we meet a character. We meet Abraham. Things will begin to change. God chooses to bring hope into the situation. He chooses Abraham, not because he's special, but because God is special. And he chooses Abraham to be the recipient, the receiver of some promises, okay? And those promises are threefold. Abraham, I'm going to give you lots of kids. I'm going to give you a nation you can call your own. And I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to other nations, okay? That's the promises. Abraham, lots of kids are going to give you a land of your own. And you're going to be a blessing. And you're going to bless everybody else. Genesis 12 onwards is the unfolding of those promises, of that story. But here's the thing. If you've read it before, the promises have a funny way of working. Because all through Genesis, you're asking, are they going to come true? It doesn't really look like it. Right? Abraham, God gives Abraham this promise of having lots of kids. He's really old. And so is his wife at this time. And they really struggle to have a child. It takes them ages. And they eventually just have one. As you're going to give your kids as numerous as the stars in the sky. They have one. And then the story moves to Isaac. How will things go with him? Slowly and weirdly is the answer. If you read it, 
Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. You read this story and you immediately begin to feel better about the issues that you have in your family. I know you've got them. But man, this family. Jacob's the favorite of his mum. Esau's the favorite of his dad. Jacob is the second born, but he's a deceiver, a schemer, and he steals the birthright from Esau. And how do you think Esau feels? He hates him and tries to kill him. Jacob runs to his mother's relatives. And you know what happens then? The story sort of then moves to Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. Then the deceiver himself is deceived. He works for uh, one of his mother's relatives and falls in love with one of his daughters. But he's tricked on his wedding night to marry another daughter. And then Jacob just finds himself embroiled in the most strange scenario. He's eventually married to four women and they finally start having kids. But in the most bizarre way, 12 sons. Finally, Jacob has 12 sons from these four women. That is not without a lot of drama. Go and read it for yourself. These are the names that we see at the beginning of Exodus. Jacob's sons. But how do they get to Egypt? Because they're not in Egypt yet. Oh, that's an even better story. How do they end up in Egypt? Well, Jacob has been playing favorites like his parents did. He had a favorite wife that caused a lot of problems. And then he has a favorite son. You know his name? Joseph. Andrew Lloyd Webber has made him very famous. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Jacob has a favorite son, Joseph, and he chooses to show his favoritism for this boy by giving him a coat. And how do you think his brothers feel? It poisons them against him. He's a little precocious anyway, but they are filled with jealousy and they hate him. So much, they plan to kill him when they're out in the fields, away from the tents, away from their parents. They plan to kill him. But you know what? They don't end up killing him, they're nice. And they just sell him into slavery instead. True story. This is what happens. They sell him into slavery to some slave traders who are heading towards where? You guessed it, Egypt. The brothers then go home and tell their aging father, hey, you know your favorite son? Looks like he was killed by a wild animal. And they keep the whole selling into slavery thing to themselves. That'll come back to bite them. Nice people. Here is where Egypt enters the story. Joseph enters Egypt in the most humble of ways as a slave. But God is with him. He's handsome. He's smart. He has God's favor. He works in Potiphar's house. But then long story short, he's accused of something he didn't do, and he ends in prison. Slavery to prison, looking pretty bad for Joseph. But God has not forgotten him. And he has not forgotten the promises he made to his great-great-grandfather, Abraham, either. We know from beforehand that Joseph has pretty vivid dreams and he has a gift for interpreting them. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has been having some pretty weird dreams and he doesn't know what they're about. He finds out that this guy in prison, Joseph, has a gift for interpreting dreams. So he brings Joseph before himself and asks him, can you please tell me about these dreams? And God gifts Joseph with the answer. He tells Pharaoh that the dreams you're having are about the history of this country and the surrounding area. For the next seven years, there's going to be bumper harvests. Food's going to be plentiful. For the next seven, horrible famine. And Pharaoh knows this is right and in an instant makes Joseph 
second in charge of the whole country. Prime Minister of Egypt, second only to himself. Joseph goes from prisoner to prime minister in an instant. And he puts Joseph in charge of making sure Egypt makes its way through these crazy 14 years that are going to happen. And you know what? It comes true. First seven years, bumper harvests, bumper crops, and Egypt knows what's coming, so they put away lots and lots and lots of food. And what happens next? Famine. It's real, and it hits them hard. It hits them hard. And during this time of famine, it affects Egypt and the whole surrounding area. Guess who comes looking for food? Can you guess? Joseph's brothers. They come looking for food. And of course, Joseph is in charge of giving out food and making sure they take care and they don't give too much away. The lovely men that sold him into slavery now come and ask him for life-giving food. Go and read this story for yourself. It's amazing. And from chapter 42 onwards, there's this whole story of, it's, it's, it's amazing, of human relations. Of the brothers don't recognize Joseph. He looks like an Egyptian and he's grown up. But of course, he recognizes his brothers. And he is torn. All the emotions are on display, joy and sadness, and he tries to forgive them. Finally, he reconciles with his brothers. And do you know what happens? He invites them into Egypt, into the safety of Egypt where food is plentiful to be. That's about 70 people bring into Egypt under the protection of himself. And that's where we find ourselves at the start of Exodus. (sighs) We did it. We got through the introduction. That's a longer one for today, don't worry. That's where Genesis ends and Exodus begins. These are the names of the sons of Israel. That's the list of Joseph's brothers. That's how they end up in Egypt. Before we go on, though, can we just do a quick check of the promises of God? How are we doing? Where are we at? Remember the promises? Land, sorry, people, land, blessing. How are we doing with them? Well, we're told at the beginning, God's people number about 70 at this point. So as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, not really. 70 ain't bad, but it's hardly a nation. Do they have their own land yet? No, they're in someone else's land. Are they a blessing? Not really. Okay, God, what are you doing? You're a promise maker. Are you a promise keeper? book of Exodus will see these promises come about in the most amazing way. We aren't there yet, though. But it's already coming about. Can we have a look at verse 6 from our reading that Tony read for us? Now Joseph, now we know who he is, and all his brothers, we know who they are too. And all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, Joseph and all his brothers died. Here's how it could have gone. And the promises of God died with them. It could have happened like that, especially if they weren't under the protection of Egypt, right? They would have most likely died in the famine or been wiped out by some raiding tribe. But because Joseph was in Egypt, he was able to bring them. Oh, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but... God at work. The promises of God don't die with them. Why? Because they have a bunch of kids, don't they? We're told three times, exceedingly numerous, fruitful, the land was filled with them. 
In Hebrew scriptures, when things are repeated, you're meant to really focus on what's going on. This is important. This is the promise being fulfilled. Under the protection of Egypt, they're able to grow. If, if you're familiar with Genesis 2, this is the same language, be fruitful and multiply. It's happening. It's happening. The promises are coming true. But, you ready for a but? Verse 8. Oh, this is unexpected. Here, a villain enters the story. This is a great story. And there's no great story without a great villain, don't you reckon? And Pharaoh is as good as they come. He's as bad as they come. Verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Now, we don't really know how long has passed between Joseph and his brothers coming, but long enough for 70 to equal thousands and thousands of thousands, okay? Long enough for this number to be noticed and cause a problem and anxiety to an upstart new king. This king is unlikely to be ignorant of his own history. He's just choosing not to remember what Joseph did for his country. He would have known, everyone would have known about Joseph, this outsider, this non-Egyptian that blessed the country. But it doesn't suit his narrative to remember that, so he chooses to forget it. Chooses to forget, only looks at the present situation. And this is the beginning. This is the crisis, okay? This is the beginning that will change Egypt and Israel forever. Pharaoh looks at this group of people and he sees a problem. They aren't like us. They're different. And they're growing. And how does he act? He acts out of fear and prejudice, doesn't he? They're different. Fear and prejudice. And of course, unfortunately, history is full of the exact same thing taking place. And today is no different, is it not? Individuals and nations viewing people who may look different and have a different culture. Individuals and nations viewing people like this as not just different members of the same humanity. But no, no, no. They're not like us at all. They are other. And they're a problem that needs to be dealt with. This might be an old book, but friends, this, these are present problems, are they not? Pharaoh sees the problem of Israel and proposes three solutions. And I must admit to you, I read that in a, in a commentary this week, those two words together, problem and solution, when it comes to a race. And I just could not help but think of Nazi Germany. The language that they used, that when they spoke about the Jewish problem and the final solution, the most despicable thing to happen within human history in the last hundred years or maybe ever, the Holocaust, use the same language. And both things, what Pharaoh was doing here and what the Nazis did, it starts by dehumanizing people who are just like us. The Bible will have none of this. 
All men and women are created in the image of God. Yes, we're different, but we are all one, all made in the image of God. But no, no. This happens by dehumanizing people who are different. And then when you do that, you can justify doing anything to them. Just like enslaving them. And that's Pharaoh's first solution. Full-scale slavery. But didn't you make promises to these people, God? (laughs) Put yourself in the shoes of, of the Israelites here. We're being enslaved? Hang on. I thought we were God's people. Where are you? This can't be part of the plan. Well, how does Pharaoh's plan go? Check out verse 11. So they put slave masters over them, that is the Israelites, God's people, to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Check out verse 12. Don't miss this. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Did you get that? What's going on here? The most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth can't stop these people. Pharaoh's got another solution, though. Here's his second one. He tries to solve the problem by going to the source the delivery room. He brings in two Hebrew wives, Hebrew, Israel, same people, okay? He brings in two Hebrew midwives and said to them, hey, when you're called in to help at the birth of an Israelite, of a Hebrew woman, if it's a girl, you can let her live. But if it's a boy, kill him. How chilling is that? A brutal and chilling request. You think about what these midwives do. Their role is to what? Help steward life into the world. And they're being asked to do the opposite. You imagine being asked to do this. How will they react? This reminds me of a memoir I read fairly recently of an Iraqi doctor that fled the country. Before he fled, he was a junior doctor in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq war. And Iran was winning, Iraq was badly losing, and many Iraqi soldiers were fleeing the front lines. And he was in Baghdad, um, and a lot of these soldiers were retreating. And he cruelly was asked to perform operations on retreating soldiers to remove their ears. I don't know why they weren't executed. I think they probably wanted them walking around as a sign of you don't go against the regime. What a horrible thing to be asked. Of course, he refused. Many other doctors did too. But somehow he hid himself within one of the hospital rooms and other doctors were asked to do this thing and they refused and they were shot on the spot. But he refused and fled. Imagine being asked to to, to mutilate somebody. And he said in his book, I made an oath as a doctor to do no harm, to do good. This is what doctors must do. They make an oath to, to help people, not harm. I imagine these midwives may be thinking a similar thing. We want to bring life, not death. What should the midwives do? We are told, verse 17, I love this part of the story. The midwives, who were named Shipra and Pua, cool names, 
some ideas for your daughters when they're born. Great names. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Wow. Brave women. Brave women. And here the scene is set for what takes place for the whole rest of this book. The scene is set. What is it? Who will you fear? Who is the real God? Who is really in control? Who is more powerful? Pharaoh, the man who tries to claim to be a God? Or the one who created that man who created, that thinks he's God? Pharaoh or Yahweh? Pharaoh or God? Who's more powerful? We'll find out. The midwives choose to fear God over Pharaoh. They don't obey his brutal command and he finds out he gets wind of it. Maybe he sees lots of Hebrew boys running around thinking, what are they doing? He brings them back in. I told you to do something. What's happening? Why are you letting these boys live? I love their answer, don't you? I heard you laugh during the reading. We're supposed to. It's funny. Oh, great king. These Hebrew women aren't like you. They're not like the Egyptians. They're hardy country folk. They just pop the kids out. And you know what? Pharaoh believes them. What an idiot. I don't want to make too much of this, but the Egyptians are utterly racist towards the Hebrews, right? Toward the Jews. They believe they are different, they are other. That's why they can enslave them and control them. And so, of course, he thinks they're so different, he believes this totally untrue thing. He's believed his own press and he's been fooled by it. Do you see? Of course, they're not that different. <laughs> but I love the cunning of the midwives. I love it. God rewards their actions. You see that? God rewards their actions. What happens? Well, how's Pharaoh's plan going so far? Not great, because the people keep increasing in number. Pharaoh's plan comes to nothing again, but that's not the end. We have a third and final solution. He declares it, which is where the chapter ends, setting up the scene for next week. So you've got to come back. The arrival of Moses. Every he, and now, every Hebrew born... Sorry, every Hebrew boy who is born must be thrown into the Nile and meet their death. This is the order, a horrible order to give. Will that plan work? We'll see. We'll see. But let's pause here for a bit. Let's pause here for a bit and rewind. We need to go back over some of what we've just said, some of what we've just seen, and try to apply it to our lives. I want us to go back and look at the question we saw at the beginning. Great application for you and I. Where is God when? Where is God when it looks like he's not there? When the situation is horrible, when it looks like other people are actually in control, what are we to do then in those times? Here's an answer. We look a little closer for the hidden hand of God because it is there. Let's keep looking. You may have noticed in chapter 1, no mention of God. See that? Chapter 2 as well, only the very end, 
No mention of God. That's on purpose. We are meant to feel the apparent absence of God in this situation. We are meant to feel the tension, as of course God's people would have felt. Yeah? Now in Exodus, we're going to see the mighty, miraculous hand of God. Divine plagues rain down from the sky, pillars of cloud and smoke, parting of the Red Sea. But that's all to come. We're not there yet. Now we're meant to ask the question, God, where are you? Have you forgotten us? It's a tension. They must have felt, God, where the heck are you? I don't know much about you, but I thought you had a plan and being made slaves. How can that be part of a good plan? How could you have let this happen? I know, maybe Pharaoh is stronger. You see, God's people might be separated now by three and a half thousand years of history, but as Christians, we experience a similar thing, don't we? Don't we? We too live between promises. Christ has come. He has died and he has risen again. And he has given us grace upon grace and the deposit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he has promised to come again. But we are not there yet. We live in between. And in this time, we can often ask and think and wonder, God, where are you? Are you really at work? Because I turn the TV on, I read the paper, I talk to people at work and my family, and I think it doesn't feel like you're in control. It doesn't feel like you've got a plan. I know you promised stuff, but it doesn't feel like it really is relevant to me now. It feels distant. We live in a tension. And yet what I think we can learn from Exodus chapter 1 is to look closely for the hidden hand of God, what we would call the providence of God. Okay, God sometimes works through his hand of the miraculous, but most often works through his hand of providence. How? Remember Pharaoh's great plans? Remember them? His solutions for dealing with the Hebrews, let's enslave them. That'll break their spirit. That'll destroy them. The opposite happens. Yeah? That'll stop them. The opposite happens. This doesn't make sense. The more he pushed them, the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. This isn't normal, okay? This is the most powerful man in the world. His act desires should have been, should have worked. But no, 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 no. How can it be? I'll tell you how. Because God is at work. Can you see it? God is at work frustrating Pharaoh's plans. May not be completely obvious, but it's there. God is there. He is at work. He is always working. He hasn't forgotten his people. Every step of their journey has been an essential part of the plan. May not be your timing, but it's his timing. You can trust him. And Pharaoh's plans can go and get stuffed. God has a plan and it'll come about. How often are we tempted to doubt it? It can seem like the Pharaohs of our day are really the ones in control. But Romans 13 tells us that all authorities exist because God allows them to. He has a big plan for our big, pl- for our big world. And don't you reckon, we can see from chapter 1, God's not just limited to having plans for the big things. 
Remember our friends, the midwives? Remember them? They disobey the powerful king in favour of the true king. And they're not killed. You'd expect them to be executed on the spot, right? They're not killed. They're rewarded. God rewards them for lying. So we can conclude that if you lie, you'll be... No, I'm kidding. If you lie and end up saving thousands of people, we'll let you off the hook. Okay? God is not only in control behind the scenes on a huge national macro level. He cares about the lies of these two seemingly insignificant people. That's how Pharaoh would have viewed them. Insignificant to God? I don't think so. And doesn't that just totally remind you of Jesus? I mean, Jesus was given the biggest job of all time. Was he not? Save humanity. Rescue humanity. Reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to himself. Pretty big job. If anyone ever had reason to say, I just don't have time, it's him. But you read about Christ in the Gospels. He only ever has time for people. He only, he just, all we see is care for the individual. Yeah? People like these midwives. He has time for people. He knows them. He listens. He cares. And he restores. Reading Exodus 1. Hey, we can be assured God's in control of the whole world. Right? And yet no detail slips past him. He is concerned with the individual and just how beautifully is this shown in Christ. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper communion together this morning, which I love doing. Before we get there, though, let's remind ourselves of just one more thing. Remember the first few few verses in the chapter, list of names, You read it and it kind of seems boring, and I get that. But we've learned that, yeah, it's helpful. It helps answer the question, who are these people? Why are they in Egypt? But there's so much more than that. What? It links these people, current people, suffering in Egypt with their past. They're not just a random bunch of people. They have a history that really matters. It reminds them. The God that made these promises is the same God that is with them working behind the scenes. Now, how is that relevant for them and us? Here's how. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How is God going to act in any situation? How do we answer that question? We look at what he's done in the past. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God who fulfills his promises and who acts. And I tell you, this is so relevant for us because God doesn't change. And the very act of celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion today, is what? It's remembering what God is like and what he's done, isn't it? And more than that, it's recognizing that we're not just some random bunch of people. We're God's people. We are people of the promise. These people three and a half thousand years ago are God's people too. They serve the same God. We are not a people adrift. 
We are a people with a purpose. We are promise receivers. And this God who makes these promises, he is a promise keeper. Never once, ever, are we given any evidence to doubt that. As a Christian, we are part of his people. He's made promises to us. Can he be trusted to come through on them? I believe he can. Because the way he's acted in the past informs our present and our future. So friends, why don't we remember these things as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? I'm now going to pray for us to set our hearts right before we take in this meal of remembrance. So let's just take a moment to be quiet, be still a few moments, and then I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession, and I'll direct us. Let's spend some quiet moments. As we prepare to come to the table, the Lord's table, let's say a prayer of confession together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we've gone our own way, not loving you as we should, nor loving our neighbor as ourselves. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed and in what we failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbour and to live for your honour and glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.